Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. This chapter has been somewhat famously called the Hall of Faith chapter. It could be understood as a song of faith. It's a picture gallery of greatness from the Old Testament. A catalog of spiritual greatness. With sweeping grandeur, the author, pastor, preacher takes us as we climb to glory on a continuing reading of ancient men and women who are testified to in the pages of Scripture as pleasing to God because they trust God, because they trusted Him. These are these example after example after example, this testimony after testimony after testimony are prime examples of those who did not drift away, those who did not neglect so great a salvation, those who did not apostatize, those who did not shrink back to destruction, even as we read at the end of chapter 10, among the different warning passages out of the flowing shepherd's heart, this author had in his mind. And we now come in verses 5 and 6. Our passage this morning are two verses, Hebrews 11, verse 5 and 6. We come to the second example, named by name, the second of three of pre-flood superstars that God has for us in the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, We have before us one of only two men that were taken up to God before they even saw death. One of only two men who are specifically described by God as one who walked with God with that exact equation. Uh, The man of whom we read this morning only appears five times in five places in Scripture. Uh, Two of them are chronologies, genealogies, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Once in Genesis 5 and then twice in the New Testament in Jude and Hebrews. Beloved, listen as I read. Follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 5 and 6. This is the word of God. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Beloved, this is the word of God. This is the Bible read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now what we have is this author, pastor, preacher of this sermonic epistle to the Hebrews. He gives us a built-in outline in these two verses. He gives us an illustration. He follows it up with a proposition, and then he wraps it up with an application. And I love what Sinclair Ferguson, one of my two favorite living Scottish preachers, had to say. He was talking about, and he gave a gentle warning around different passages, different verses in Scripture that might be our favorite chapters or our favorite verses. And what he warned against is that we sometimes have the propensity to not ask the question, why is this here? 
Now, that's one of the beauties of and one of the powerful dimensions of expositional preaching, a verse-by-verse, passage-by-passage. We have a built-in setting of the stage of why this is here. And I would draw your attention back to Hebrews 6, verse 11, where the author said this. He said, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So that, purpose statement, you may not be sluggish, but watch this. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So you may mimic those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Uh, Beloved, again, we have stellar examples, a litany of faithful men and women in the Old Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. And the pattern is the same of hope, obedience, and inheritance. Even in that purpose statement from Hebrews 6, 11, and 12, we see that pattern repeated throughout chapter 11, and certainly here in the case of the man Enoch. Beloved, the spiritually mature Old Testament saints of Hebrews chapter 11 have much to teach us New Testament little ones as we would seek to unpack the riches that God has for us. So first, let's look at the illustration that he opens up with. Look at the beginning of verse 5. We see that familiar equation that we've already seen twice and will continue to see throughout the rest of the chapter, by faith, Enoch. By faith, by faith, by faith. 27 times from the last couple verses of chapter 10 to the first couple chapters of chapter 12, first couple verses of chapter 12, the author brings out faith. That is the reigning theme of this here. About a week and a half ago, I had a wonderful opportunity to meet with a delightful man who was raised as a Jehovah Witness. And we spent a little over an hour together, and it was just a wonderful time to go to the Word of God. I loved, even at the beginning of our meeting, he said something to the effect of, if it's in the Bible, that's what I want to believe. And I was able to say, amen, I absolutely, I could not agree more strongly with that statement. And having just started Hebrews 11, it was a joy to go here with this dear man and see how God says, by faith, by faith, by faith. That is the reigning theme that God has before us. Now, Enoch, by faith, Enoch. We encounter Enoch the first time of the five places in Scripture back in Genesis chapter 5. Now, you may remember, and we even briefly reviewed this last week, in Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4 opens up with the beauty of the birth of a son of Cain and a beginning demonstration of even the faith of Eve. And then a big part, of course, the chapter is a sordid, horrible situation of Cain rising up and killing his brother Abel. But then chapter 4 ends with the birth of another son of Seth. And we read at the end of chapter 4 that it was in the days of Seth that men began to call upon the name of Yahweh, which I think is the corporate praise and worship at the beginning of that. So chapter 4 ends on a positive note. And then when we come to Genesis chapter 5, what we have is a genealogy. We have a family tree of faithful men from Adam all the way to Noah. 
But one of the dimensions that God is driving home there is eight times we see the phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died. It is something like a walk through a cemetery. Even in the lives of these great men that Moses lays out for us in this genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Martin Luther said of those ten men listed in Genesis 5, they are the greatest heroes except or with the exception of Jesus and John the Baptist. All that to say there's one man that stands out above even that great list and litany of spiritual men, namely Enoch, the son of Jared, the father of Methuselah. Because Enoch, all the way back in Genesis 5, shows us that there is hope conquering death. Even when we have the staggering reminder, and he died, and he died, and he died, that God's judgment that he laid out in Genesis, he laid out the warning in Genesis 2, and then he laid out the judgment in Genesis 3 is true. There is death, yet there is hope in conquering death. That is the illustration, that is the picture of Enoch. Now, as we go to the second example after Abel, what we know is this by faith, it's the same faith. It's believing God, believing in God, believing God, believing his word, of understanding it, of trusting it. And then by his grace and mercy, showing fidelity and faithfulness to that word. We understand it's the same faith by which Abel and Enoch were saved that you and I are saved. But what we see in these two examples is there are different situations, there are different dimensions and nuances and manifestations of that faith. Abel showed us that we worship by faith. Enoch shows us that we walk by faith. And as many brothers and sisters in Christ there are here even this morning, so also there are that many different situations, different manifestations of the same faith. But he continues, look, the rest of verse 5, Enoch by faith was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. He was transposed. He was transferred. He was changed. Along with Elijah, Enoch is one of two men in the scripture that were taken up by God before they even saw physical death. Uh, Enoch, what took place was he put off the mortal corruptible flesh and he put on immortal and incorruptible flesh. And Genesis 5, let's turn there for a moment. I would love to read the entire chapter. We don't have time to do that. Um, in light of the parent-child dedication at the end and the uh, produce-productivity celebration we'll enjoy there, just even seeing the father and the father and the father, all the rest of that would be a joy. Certainly to see the recurring pattern of and he died, and he died, uh, we, we read that all these different people, Seth lived after so many years after he became the father of Enish, and then he died. Enish lived so many years after he became the father of Kenan, and so he died. The pattern goes on, but when we come to verse 21 in the case of Enoch, that's where God, through Moses, breaks the pattern. Look at what it says. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 
He didn't die. God overruled death on the part of Enoch. And so he was not for God took him. And it tells us twice in these couple verses that he walked with God. To be sure, we should understand that every example in Scripture, every Old Testament man of God and woman of God walked with God, yet Enoch is uniquely described here twice as walking with God. And in fact, it's a Hebrew grammar of intensity. Literally, he walked about with God. It was his habitual walk. It described his intimacy, his fellowship with God, his daily conduct. And it is through that that this one man, Enoch, in one giant leap, jumped over the river of, de river of death and walked on the crystal pavement of heaven. He was one day in the wilderness, even as we sang earlier, and the next day he was in the presence of God in the promised land, the land of eternal rest. And so, beloved, Enoch's walk of faith is a, we could say, the practice of the presence of God. It, in fact, in the same way that he is one of two men who was taken up to God before death, so also, as I mentioned earlier, he is one of only two men described as he walked with God. The other is his great-grandson, Noah, who God tells us in the next chapter, Genesis 6-9, that Noah was a blameless, righteous man who walked with God. So, that is the unique manifestation of the faith of Enoch and also described of Noah as well. But again, it's the same faith. It's the same charge. It's the same dynamic that you and I enjoy. That's why the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. It's the same dynamic. Or the Apostle Paul states it in the form of an exhortation when he wrote to the Colossian church, Colossians 2, 6, as you therefore have received Christ, so also walk in him. Beloved, it's the same faith, the same dynamic that you and I enjoy in Christ. And we could say this walk of faith is really the whole life that we live in response to the God that we have and the promises that he makes. This Walk of faith, beloved, in a word, is the God-given ability to accept his word, to understand what he's revealed in the pages of Scripture, to agree with it, and then by God's grace and mercy with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to obey that revealed truth. In our Thursday morning men's Bible study, which I again would encourage you men towards the fellowship and joy. We were in John 18, even this last Thursday, where Jesus is appearing before Pilate in the trial. And in John 18, 37, you read the words, Pilate therefore said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. God's sovereignty over that. But now watch this. Jesus said, he wrapped up his statement to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Beloved, that is the God-given ability to accept, to understand, to agree with, and to receive the truth of God and to live by it. And understand this. Faith is apart from works. We are saved by faith alone, not as a result of works, so that none would boast, is what Paul told the Ephesians. So we are saved by faith, but the faith that saves us is a decisive act. 
you can't just, you won't, none of us will just drift into faith. It is a volitional act of the will, a belief, a trust in the word of God. And that is what is represented by this tremendous illustration of Enoch and his God-pleasing walk of faith. And understand this, beloved, you don't have to go to seminary and get a seminary degree to walk with God. You don't have to understand Hebrew and Greek to walk with God. You don't even have to be a believer for 10, 15, 20 years to walk with God. You can walk with God by virtue of your newness in life from the very time you are born, even a new babe in Christ. In the corporate world, they talk about crawl first, then walk, then run. But beloved, we can walk with God from the moment God makes us a new creature, the moment you're an adopted daughter or son of the Most High God. So, The context in Genesis 5, in this march of death, in this tour through the cemetery, and he died, and he died, not Enoch. God overruled on his behalf, for he was not, and God took him. And understand this, Enoch changed his place, but he did not change his company. As Enoch walked with God on earth, so Enoch now walks with God in heaven. When God took him some 5,500 years ago, he walked with God in heaven. And now 5,500 years or so from that, as we mark time here on earth, he's walking with God in heaven even now. And understand this, dear beloved, dear friend, understand we can't live with God in heaven if we don't walk with God on earth. Again, We are saved by faith, not by works. But the faith that saves will produce works by virtue of the good work that God began in our life, in your life. And he will perfect and finish what he began. So Enoch's companion during his life was his companion at the end of his life and is still his companion even today. And that's the same kind of charge Jesus also gave earlier in John. John 5, 24, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now, passing out of death into life had a tremendously unique, only repeated once in the annals of human history at the physical level, manifestation in the case of Enoch. But every brother and sister in Christ, every adopted son and daughter of Christ passes out of spiritual death into eternal spiritual life at the point of conversion. That is the illustration that the preacher, pastor, author of Hebrews brings to us. Secondly is his proposition at the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. Namely, that Enoch's faith was pleasing to God. His fellowship with God, it was a pleasing faith. Look at what he says at the end of verse 5. And he says, for, so in other words, this is the reason why, the reason why, so now all the way some 3,500 years after God took Enoch up when the author of Hebrews is writing this, the reason why, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And this continues this theme of God's witness, of God testifying to these men and women that they were pleasing to God himself because they trusted in him. We saw it first 
in verse 2 of Hebrews 11, not Genesis 5. He says, for by it, by faith, by faith, the men of old gained approval. And then we see it twice in verse 4 with the first example that he gives us. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying. So the witness, the approval, the testifying, all coming from the same word. We'll see it again at the very end, at the end of this catalog of spiritual greatness. In Hebrews 11, verse 39, all these having gained approval through their faith, And then in verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, this theme of God testifying to the work we see powerfully in the case of Enoch. He obtained the witness, and what did God testify? That he, Enoch, was pleasing to God. Are there better words that could be said about any man of God, any woman of God, than he or she was pleasing to God? I don't think there are any better words that could be said. Think of God's announcement when Jesus Christ was baptized by John the baptizer, John the forerunner. God spoke out of heaven, said, this is my beloved son, what? In whom I am well pleased. Or you can think of the birth announcement of Gabriel to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, when he said, on earth peace among men with whom God is well pleased. There is no better description, no better commendation than to be pleasing to God. It's interesting that it's the same root word for this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, also the birth announcement, but that root word only appears, that pleasing word only appears in verb form in the New Testament three times. In Hebrews 11, verse 5 and 6, and then again in chapter 13. But in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Septuagint translators use that same word to describe Enoch's walk with God and Noah's walk with God in Genesis 5 and 6. And that's why this author of Hebrews, because he's writing to a Jewish congregation who speak primarily Greek, he cites the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and that's where you get this connection between their walk with God and the fact they are pleasing to God. That is at the heart of what he wants us to understand. And then finally in verse 6, continuing his proposition, he states a double negative. He says, look at the beginning, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, you have no power to please him. It's impossible, utterly impossible to please God without faith. And it would be right to understand, we'll take that double negative and turn it into a positive. What that means is, with faith, it is possible to please him. And you could understand another way in which we can slice and understand the breadth and the beauty of the kind of saving faith the author is bringing out for us all through chapter 11 is that faith is the power to please God. That's what true faith looks like. He gives you an enabling power, a dynamite kind of power so that brother, sister, you and I can please God. And I Thought even of David uh, Lupinetti, Pastor David's great mess. I was so blessed by the men's big breakfast yesterday with the incredible testimony of Harley. And then uh, David's message when he went through 1 Corinthians 2. 
uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5, Paul says, my message, speaking to the Corinthians, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in, watch this, demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That faith is the power of God. Paul told the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to men and women, to older adults, to children who can understand, to anyone, red, black, white, yellow, green, any country, any land, we are saved by faith alone. That is the message of Scripture. And we can also expand a little bit when we want to understand what did this God-pleasing faith of Enoch look like? How was it manifested? We can go to the other New Testament passage that talks about him in the unique, marvelous book of Jude, the one-chapter book of Jude, in verses 14 and 15, Jude speaks of Enoch. And we learn there that Enoch was a fearless preacher. He was a beacon of hope, piercing the darkness of a dark and deadly time. So when we open up, and when we finish chapter 4, as I said, men are beginning to call on the name of Yahweh. And then we start going from the beginning time of Adam all the way up to Noah. And by the time you get to Enoch, according to Jude, it was a dark and horrible time. Jude tells us that Enoch was, or we could even state in the positive or in the present, I should say, Enoch is an ancient man with an ancient message. He's a timeless man with a timeless message. Enoch is a deathless man with a deathless message. He is a godly man, Enoch was, who spoke truth to an ungodly world. June 14, <laughs> Jude 14, Jude writes, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. So Enoch was a prophet, he prophesied. And in fact, the words that come after that with the rest of verse 14 is the first prophecy, chronologically speaking, recorded from man. And in fact, it's the only prophecy that predates the flood spoken by man in the pages of Scripture. And he's taken it from the book of Enoch. I mentioned earlier that uh, there's a paucity of references to Enoch in Scripture. There's, there's only five. There aren't, aren't many. But Enoch was a, it certainly is a fascinating figure, and in the rabbinical literature and in much of the Jewish writing of the time, there was volumes of different works about Enoch. And what Jude does is he takes a quote from the first book of Enoch. And while the first book of Enoch was not scriptural, it was apocryphal, there was a prophecy of Enoch that was in that first book of Enoch that according to the testimony of God by virtue of the quote in Hebrews was actually what Enoch said. At the rest of verse 14, Jude, Enoch was saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Enoch, some 5,500 years ago, some 3,500 years prior to the time of Christ, was prophesying about the coming of the Lord. We know now on this side of the first coming of Jesus, he was actually prophesying even the second coming, the coming that hasn't yet come. Uh, Enoch used past tense as recorded by Jude because his coming was so certain that it could be stated as having already taken in the past. But then Jude continues, if you're there or you can listen as I read in verse 15, he is coming to execute judgment upon all. What 
Enoch was saying is there's no escape. There's no exception, no defense, no advocate, no retrial, no appeal. None will be overlooked. None will escape if you're not in Christ. And then finally, at the end of verse 15, Enoch, whom George Whitfield called a flaming preacher, and you'll see in a moment why, he said this. He is coming to execute judgment upon all and to convict, watch the word ungodly repeated four times and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So, beloved, again, Enoch was a deathless man with a deathless message in dark times. And you can imagine, we read earlier in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Can you imagine 300 years of sanctification? What, what that would look like, what that would be like on this side of eternity? On the other side, can you imagine 900 years? Men and women lived 900 years plus in the pre-flood times. Can you imagine 900 years of hardening? 900 years of rebelling against the authority of God. 900 years of questioning the goodness of God. 900 years of defying the word of God. It helps us understand why the world, by the time you get to know, was so wicked that God destroyed the world with the righteous judgment of the flood. So, beloved, as we think in the context of Enos, Enoch's God-pleasing faith, Enoch walked with God in an age when practically no one else did. He is an example of faith that stands alone. He had bold courage without compromise. And by his generation, there were several million and probably tens of millions of people on earth. All of them were his, in one way or another, were his uh, relatives, brothers and sisters, nieces, nephews, uh, great nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, and so forth. And you can be sure that the vast majority of the people that were hearing that message of Enoch didn't like what he had to say. He wasn't very popular with them. Enoch, we could say it this way, did not please the majority of his family members that heard that message. But Enoch pleased God. That is the point. Beloved, dear friend, understand this. God is always and always has been interested in a holy minority, much more so than any kind of imaginary moral majority. And in the context of Genesis, we can even think of the fall. And the fall was the failure of faith on the part of Eve, the failure of faith on the part of Adam. And it was that rebellion against God's authority. And the lack of faith then, and the lack of faith anytime, severs the lifeline that links, the lifeline that tethers the creature to the creator. That's on the other side of the equation. And to say what I said before, but in a slightly different way, friend, if you don't walk with God on earth, you won't live with God in heaven. And I like what James Montgomery Boyce, the late James Montgomery Boyce, said to believers by way of encouragement in the context of this minority-majority situation. Dr. Boyce said this, Do you find yourself to be a minority in your family, your neighborhood, your business, even your church? Not this church, but hypothetically speaking. Don't be discouraged. It's always been this way. 
Apparently, Dr. Boyce says, Pastor Boyce said, apparently God doesn't deal so much in quantity as in quality. Moreover, although the faithful are often few, parenthetically, praise God, they are also many a times, they are nevertheless always those few. And, and then Dr. Boyce gives an application. We are meant to encourage one another with these truths. And what a perfect segue to what we saw here in Hebrews, some, uh, I don't know, 14 or so verses earlier, Hebrews 10, 25. Don't forsake your own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, that is the word of God in Hebrew. So we see the illustration. We now understand at some level the proposition. Finally, the author at the end of verse 6 finish up with an application. And this is an application of how you and I come to God. How you or I, how we draw near to God. In the middle of verse 6, he says, for, so here's another reason why, for he who comes to God. He who would draw near to God must believe. Same root word, believe, as the root word for faith. Must believe, and in fact, the believe is at the beginning of the clause in the original language for emphasis. Believe he or she must who would come to God. Now we can ask the question, Precisely what did Enoch believe some 5,500 years ago, some 3,500 years before Christ? What is the timeless message of this timeless man? And what we see, beloved, at the end of verse 6 are two beliefs. Enoch believed in God's being, and he believed in God's bounty. He believed in God's reality, and he believed in God's reward. He believed in God's existence and he believed in God's excellence. So, the first belief, beloved, is Enoch believed in God's being. God is the supreme and eternal object of all true faith. He said, look at the text, must believe. The one who would come to God must believe that he is. Now, we can pause there and kind of in a similar way that I mentioned before regarding seeking God. Or, Actually, sorry, this first time, excuse me, rewind the tape. <laughs> so what we have here is we understand, pause here for a second, we understand that all men and women know that God exists. Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 1. Everyone, the agnostic, the one who would say he or she is an atheist, they know in their heart that God exists by virtue of creation and by virtue of their conscience. God is very clear on that. So what does the author of Hebrews mean here when he says we must believe that he is? What he's doing here is he's taking it to the next level. It's not merely understanding that God is. It's not merely agreeing that God is. There's a trust. There's a fidelity. There's a faithfulness. There's a belief that produces a different worldview, a different perspective, different behavior by virtue of that foundational belief. And what's amazing is even when we think of this belief in God's being and the belief in God's bounty, this follows the pattern that we saw back in verse 1. Verse 1 and verse 6 are in some ways kind of a sandwich. There's kind of a bracket there because both of them have two components to faith. In other words, if you go back and look at verse 1 again, in verse 1, faith is the assuring substance of things not seen. It is the convincing evidence of 
what is not yet there. We saw that back in verse 1. Now faith is belief in God's being and belief in God's bounty. Also, in the context of believing that he is, notice what the author does not do here. He doesn't come up with an argument for the existing of God. Even the Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nowhere in Scripture do the authors try to give some convoluted proofs that God exists. Now, to be sure, proofs of God's existence, we can think of the classical ones, the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, the moral argument. There's value in those, but as David mentioned in a different vein in the message yesterday, those are for our assurance, they're for our blessing. They're not a primary means by which God would draw an unsaved person to themselves. Those kind of proofs are for believers, not for the unbelievers. So, beloved, God is the supreme reality and the first cause. He is the foundation and source of all created beings. And because of this, he is full and overflowing. And because God is, he can be there for you. And belief in God carries with it necessarily belief in his word, belief in his promise, which takes us from his existence to his excellence. And as I have mentioned before, and I want to say it again when we go through here, this kind of faith, this kind of belief is not an invitation to step into the dark. It's an invitation, better stated, it's a command to turn towards the light. It is a rational, reasonable, logical faith. It's not illogical, unreasonable, and irrational, such as, sorry to repeat two Sundays in a row, the faith in evolution. So, Enoch believes in God's being. Finally, he believes in God's bounty. So, not only is God the foundation of all this, but God is also personal. And he blesses his children. And what we have here is the reflection that faith is a forward-looking gaze. That's consistent. That's part of the pattern in all the examples that God gives us here in chapter 11 is a belief in the things that aren't seen. We see that in every one of these. That's why at the end of verse 6 he says, you must believe and that he, God, is a rewarder of those who seek him. And this is another example of where the grammar of the verb is intensified, diligently seeking God. So, as good students of the word, we can ask the question now, who are those who seek God? And this is where, now I'll do the similar, similar to believing, everyone believes in God's being, so what does it mean that we must believe that he is. So also here we know that God makes it very clear in Romans chapter 1 that no one seeks for God. No, not one. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. Romans 3.11. There's none who seeks for God. So how do we balance and understand that with the author of Hebrews saying that God is a rewarder of those who seek him? What might help us understand is we could put it this way. We seek God because he first sought us. We love God 
right? Because he first loved us. The one who seeks God isn't an unbeliever seeking God in his or her own righteousness. But these are Christians who, by God's grace and mercy, because God sought you and me, rescued us, adopted us into the beloved. Therefore, we can be characterized, even though imperfectly, by daily seeking the Lord. That's the kind of faith, excuse me, God-pleasing walk of faith. And what was Enoch's reward? Enoch escaped death. That was his reward. He lived in obedience and fellowship with God, so God overruled death for him. That was the physical reality of Enoch. Beloved, you and I in Christ, we escape spiritual death. There is no second death for any man or woman, young or old, in Christ. We escape. That is the message of hope all the way from God's words of judgment to the serpent and Satan. And before he gave the words of judgment to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, he gave a word of hope there. Beloved, throughout Scripture, there is always a message of hope for those that death is not the end for those who belong to God. And practically speaking, a long life on this side of eternity is not the greatest blessing that can come from God. To pass away, to be taken up, to die prematurely in Christ is even a greater reward. Paul told the Philippian church, Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is what? To die is gain. And all of us can think of examples that may come to mind when we think of this. And most of you that know me will know the example that comes to my mind. Beloved, death is not for the believer, for the woman or man in Christ. Death is not extinguishing the light of the Christian. It's putting out and putting away the lamp because the dawn of eternal life has risen. Our hope in heaven is based on the word of God. Beloved, on our steady climb to glory, understand this. We always need spiritual leaders in front of us, and we should always have disciples behind us. And in Hebrews 11, tremendous examples of spiritual leaders in front of us. Enoch shines like a jewel. He commands our attention, and he calls for our invitation. He reminds us that as faith honors God, so also God honors faith. Faith unites us to the blessings of God, and faith trusts the promises of God. Beloved, come again, even now, to God anew with the empty hands of faith. That's the message of Scripture. That's the message of the life of Enoch. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for what it means to be an adopted son and daughter of you, of the newness of life you give us, of the emancipation from the bondage of sin, of the joy we have in serving you, of, of our understanding of Scripture, of applying it to our lives. Lord, we ask for forgiveness where we fall short, but we praise you and thank you that you are the one who holds our hand and guides us forward. And the promise Lord God, you've given us that you will perfect and finish the work that you began in us. Thank you for the godly examples that we are coming through in Hebrews 11. Thank you for the godly examples of men and women around us. Help us, Lord, 
to worship you in spirit and truth and to glorify you in all that we do. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.